I invite you uh, now to stand for the reading of God's word with me, if you are able. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name on, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or, or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter this chapter in the book of Revelation, we do so with a certain amount of fear and trembling. 
message is not necessarily an easy one. In fact, it is uh, very difficult. And so, Lord, we pray as we uh, look more closely at your word today that your Holy Spirit will do his work just as he's done his work in writing these words. And so now, Lord, we pray that they will be written more deeply on our hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I, uh, I read of a man who was driving to work when a truck run a stop sign, hit his car broadside and, broadside and knocked him out cold. A uh, passerby pulled him from the wreck and revived him, and when he was revived, he began to struggle and had to be tranquilized by the medics. Later, when he was calm, they asked him why he struggled so much. He said, well, I, I remember the impact, then nothing. I woke up on a concrete slab in front of a huge flashing shell sign, and somebody was standing in front of the S. Okay, all right. Okay, I, okay. I, people are getting it now. All right, okay. You know, there are, there are few sections in Scripture that are more comforting or more terrifying than this chapter. Because this chapter talks about hell. If if one were uh, to trace the theology of hell and how often it is preached on or taught in evangelical churches over the last several decades, you would probably see a very steady decline to the point that even churches that are still considered fundamentalists rarely, if ever, preach or teach on the subject of hell any longer. Some think that's for the best, and I, uh, I'd like to address that issue today. You know, in the uh, last three sermons in this series, which we took a break from for a couple of weeks, we've seen how Satan works in this world and how he is at work currently. And uh, I would... Uh, wholeheartedly recommend if you've missed any of those last three sermons that uh, you, can, you would listen to them online so that you have a better idea of the context in which this cha- chapter comes. Now in uh, chapter 14, the scene changes. See, this new scene begins with a lamb. Three weeks ago in chapter 13, there was a different lamb, not this lamb, That lamb was deceptive, for it looked like the Lamb of God, but it was the opposite. Now, this vision, though, takes us back to the true Lamb of God, back to the real Jesus, not the counterfeit Jesus or the deceptive faiths. But we're told that this Lamb is not alone. He's accompanied by 144,000 people. Who are they? Well, we've uh, seen this number and symbolism before, and uh, if you like to take notes, you'll find this in uh, the middle of your bulletin there. Point one on that outline is the 144,000 are all of God's people. They are the 12 tribes of Israel, times the 12 apostles, times 1,000, which is a number indicating fullness. So in other words, it is the full number of all the people of God, both Old Covenant and New. 
We saw last week as well that they are marked out by God. They are stamped, and we see it again here in verse 1. And last week we saw that Satan's agents mark those out that are his, and we see here again the mark of the Father and the Lamb on the full number of his people. See, Paul makes a very similar point in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now let me uh, talk some more about these uh, 144,000 because I've gotten uh, a lot of questions about who they are. There have been uh, different popular opinions about who these people might be. There are some within Christian circles that have suggested that these are the martyred Jews during a tribulation period sometime in the future. Others have said that they are a specially sanctified group of believers because, uh, because of the description that they are sexually celibate. Some have suggested they are monks or nuns. Now, if we uh, were to interpret this literally, as some attempt to do, we'd also have to conclude that all of them were men, since it specifically tells us that they had not defiled themselves specifically with women. Now, I I think both these interpretations are wrong. Why? Well... These same kind of numbers will soon be used to describe the shape of the New Jerusalem, which has similar numeric symbolism, indicating once again the inclusion of all of God's people. So I can uh, tell you quite unapologetically that the answer that makes by far the most sense and has done so for the vast majority of Christians and scholars reading this book for the last two millennia is that the number symbolizes all of God's people. So let me uh, see if I can answer the question about their celibacy. And we need to understand the symbolism here. This isn't uh, speaking about literal celibacy. This is symbolic language that we find throughout the Bible. This isn't new. It's common even throughout ancient apocalyptic literature. In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the virgin daughter of Zion in 2 Kings 19.21, as well as in Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah, weeping over Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 13, writes, What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you, that I may comfort you, virgin daughter of Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? The opposite is also true, for when Israel sins, she is referred to as acting like a harlot. We can see this type of language throughout the Old Testament. It's even in the New Testament. Paul, talking about the church in Corinth, writes in 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And even further in the book of Revelation itself ends by describing the new Jerusalem as the pure bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So uh, clearly, once again, John's description of the people of God in Christ 
and this is point two, is that the description of them as celibate has to do with covenant fidelity to God and God's faithful work in the life of his church. See, the imagery indicates that Christians must be pure and faithful to Christ if they wish to be prepared to engage in the Lamb's battles. See, unlike the world, believers cannot indulge in divided interests and affections. I often wonder how truly undivided our affections are as American Christians. We often seem more interested in everything other than the love of our Savior. Oh, we might be faithful to the Lamb of God on Sunday morning, but how about the rest of the week? Sadly, many Christian leaders today seem to set aside the standard for Christian ethics when it comes to the realm of politics, for instance. The uh, Christians, the 144,000, are also described as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, this doesn't mean that they follow him around like a puppy dog, but rather this refers to Christ's words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and daily follow me. And they're also described as purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. In other words, uh, this is the idea of self-sacrifice. We offer ourselves up to the Lamb. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, therefore, or I'm sorry, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in other words, these are believers offered up to God. They remove the other entanglements of life. They are set free. They disown themselves. This is the very meaning of worship. Today we usually think of worship as singing. But real biblical worship is to disown ourselves and give ourselves wholly to the Lamb of God. Now there's another characteristic of these 144,000. It said that no lie was found in their mouths. This is, by the way, in contrast to what we'll see in chapter 22, verse 15, where, he, where John or Jesus will describe those marked by the beast as those outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those who do not get into heaven are all liars. Not just that they tell lies, but much like in Romans chapter 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. They come to believe the lie, which is really ultimately confusing the Creator with the created. But these 144,000, God's people, do not believe the lies. Or as God's faithful people are described in the the prophet Zephaniah, they will tell no lies. 
A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. And so uh, point three is this. Truthfulness was a distinctive mark that identified believers in the first century. We find this as a common descriptor of Christians by historians and other literature written in the first and second centuries, even by those who rejected Christianity. I wonder if they would say the same about us Christians in America today. Now, some years back, I was working with a church leader who was very politically minded, and he'd send out many emails and posts on social media expressing those views. Now, I, I agreed with him on many of his posts and disagreed with others. I really had no problem with his communicating his opinions on those things. But then, then he started posting false and deceptive rumors. See, we cross a very important line when we act in this way. We take the side of the beast, as described in Revelation, the deceptive one. Sadly, when I, uh, when I called him out on this, he refused to recant or reprint. He believed that posting even deceptive and twisted information was a good thing, as long as it produced the outcome that he desired. You know, uh, who are the 144,000? Let's go back to that question. Here's what I believe to be clear, the clear answer. They are the elect. They are the redeemed, protected by the mark of God and his son. They display fidelity, faithfulness, and discipleship, sacrificing themselves, and they are truth-tellers. I'm going to come back to these 144,000, but now uh, we turn from the Lamb and those who follow after him to the stark reality of what happens to those who aren't included in the 144,000. We get a series of angels or heralds who come and the first one summons all of humankind, all human beings everywhere on the message, fear God and give him glory. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world has come, and in light of the gospel, fear God and give him glory, for the hour of judgment has come. Then the second herald comes. We're told in verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. See, this message is about the impending downfall of paganism. See, Babylon was the personification in that day of idolatry. And in the first century, Christians commonly equated this with Rome and all the idolatry of Rome just as with Babylon. For us today, this would include all the secular powers that deny that Jesus is Lord. All political powers and philosophies that are offered up as false substitutes for the real thing. This would include the, the very manifestation of secular humanism, which attempts to destroy Christianity. Babylon is described as making all nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality or the maddening wine of her adulteries. See, this includes rebelliousness and anger 
There's deep rebellion at the heart of Babylon and the philosophies that oppose the truth. Then verses 9-11, we see vividly displayed the ultimate torment of facing God's judgment. Drink the wine of rebellion and immorality means they must receive God's judgment. See, in uh, John's time, people drank wine that was diluted. And the idea here is that God's wrath was diluted before. But now, now it comes out in full strength. Whatever negative judgment the world might have seen before, it's nothing compared to what is in store at the end. Or as Jesus describes the eternal torment of hell, it's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's the picture of eternal judgment. It's an eternal suffering. It's the place of hopelessness compared to the hope that's found among the elect in Christ, the 144,000. I have a I have a non-Christian friend who will often joke with me that if he had to choose between heaven and hell, he'd choose hell because all his friends are there and it's just more fun. You ever heard that before? The reality is there are no friends in hell. We just can't get around the fact that there is eternal conscious punishment for all those who die without trusting Jesus. We don't have the song of redemption on their lips. And this ought to bring us to our knees because of the forgiveness we've received. And it ought to shake us out of our passive laziness in the face of these eternal realities. It must put us daily on our knees because of the eternal horrific consequences of the reality of hell. As John puts it in verse 12 here, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. In other words, they're obeying. They are laying up their treasures in heaven. Does this describe you? These final verses point to the time of the arrival of God's full judgment. The first picture we're given that uses the analogy of the harvest, speaking of the inevitability of judgment which comes at the right time, at harvest time. The second picture is that of the treading of the wine press. See, in those days, uh, the way that wine was made was to place thousands of grapes in a large vat and and people would trample those down. And at the bottom of the vat, there would be a grate system that would allow the juices to flow down, but the holes would remain in the press. And after all the juices pressed out, the holes would be removed and more grapes would be put in the press. And in verse 20 of this chapter, we read, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is a horrible, vivid picture of about 180 miles of blood as high as a horse's bridle. You get the picture? Point four is this. 
the image paints a picture of the violent thoroughness of God's wrath when it's finally poured out. Have you ever heard uh, someone say that uh, when you go from the God of the Old Testament to the New, you go from wrath to grace? Have you ever heard that? That somehow the Old Testament God was one of law and wrath and the New Testament God of Jesus Christ is one of forgiveness and grace? I believe that's completely wrong. I do. Let me suggest instead, and this is point five, when you move from the old covenant to the new, you ratchet up both grace and judgment. See, God's mercy is beautifully pictured throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it comes to amazing fullness in Jesus Christ, who takes our sin upon himself and dies on the cross in our place. And just as God's judgment is on display on the earth in the Old Testament, it is, by the way, Jesus who speaks the most in the New Testament on the subject of hell and its horrors. And I'll be honest with you. The reason I believe we no longer see the bigger picture of judgment in the New Testament is because many of us no longer really believe in hell. Dr. Craig Keener He's uh, the New Testament professor at Asbury Seminary, and he's written one of the more important and influential commentaries on the book of Revelation. And at the end of the section of the commentary covering chapter 14, he writes these words. Many today avoid trying to scare people into the kingdom. In a culture in revolt against authority and skeptical of threats, emphasizing God's loving invitation may be a more strategic approach. But John had no such scruples against scaring people. And as long as we speak the truth and are able to reason with people, there remain occasions when this approach is appropriate. A young atheist chose to consider the claims of Jesus immediately rather than deferring the decision because of the doctrine of hell made the stakes too high to ignore. 24 years later, that former atheist remains a committed Christian and is writing this commentary. Let me suggest that we American Christians are more concerned with physical death and worldly suffering than we are of eternal suffering. We're more concerned about poverty, hunger, illness, and physical suffering than we are eternal truths. Not that those issues aren't important. They are vitally important. But in light of eternal punishment, I don't know about you, but I tend to fall into the trap of praying only for physical, earthly things, health, work, worldly provisions. Our priority must be spiritual realities, eternal life, spiritual maturity. See, the message of much of this chapter is that our biggest problem isn't all the horrors that the world has to offer, but rather, it's the wrath of God. The year was 1939. German aggression was growing. Hitler had just invaded Czechoslovakia and Moravia, and they're occupying Lithuania, and 7,000 Jews are fleeing from there. 
Britain and France sign an agreement to support Poland if Germany invades. And it's in that context that C.S. Lewis himself, a veteran of World War I, is invited to come and speak to the student body at Oxford on the topic of learning during wartime. He starts his message this way. A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves or to start making yourselves into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, or historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What's the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Now it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. See, I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns, but to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must be not that he fiddles while the city was on fire, but that he fiddles on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for the crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know too that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that's untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are not really removable from the teaching of Christ and his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometime overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. He must ask himself, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art or mathematics or biology. If human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our ears are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions. See, war doesn't create a new condition. It only emphasizes the real spiritual condition that we all live in. It often seems to me that we fiddle while Babylon burns. Now, uh, I'd like to take us back to the 144,000. 
And as we uh, look a little closer, we can see what our life should look like in light of these eternal realities, the eternal realities of hell and heaven. We're told here that they are on Mount Zion, the place that came to symbolize redemption. It's the place where we've come even now as believers, as the preacher of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you, and he's speaking to all believers, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And their song? Well, their song is one of redemption. The old song worships the God of creation. We saw this in chapter 4, where we, uh, where we saw that uh, in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That was the old song. Well, the new song, that's a song of redemption, which only we followers and believers can sing. Do you know the song of redemption? It's described here as making a sound like mighty rushing water. Like Niagara, if you've ever been there. Mighty roaring waters. It's loud. It's like a thunderclap. It's powerful. But it's also here described as the sound of the harp. It's melodic. It's sweet. It's beautiful. That's the song we sing. For it reflects the gospel itself. It's powerful. It shatters death itself. It controls all of history. But it's also sweet and melodious. It entra entrances. It's beautiful. It's gentle. And it's loving. See, we have been bought from the tyranny of evil. I want you to think about this for a moment. And this is, by the way, point six on your outline. The angels can sing about redemption. But we, we can sing that we have been redeemed. As one uh, New Testament scholar put it about our song of redemption, it is the constant message of our being and our lives. It is our identity. We are the redeemed, and as the redeemed, we sing a song of redemption. Always. And to everyone. So I'd encourage you to live that life out loud. That all around may hear your bold, strong, and beautiful song of redemption. It's our vision here at, Par at Parkway, isn't it? A vision of loving people to real life in Jesus. It's a song of redemption, and it's about singing that in our lives to all those around us as we love them to real life in Jesus. Let's pray together.
Gracious and loving Lord, there is a stark reality, a reality of of heaven and hell that must be much real for us than it is on a normal day. Our vision must encapsulate that, that there are only two ultimate destinations. The destination for the 144,000, those true believers who follow you, who give their lives, and the destiny of those who don't know you. That should shake us. It should shake us from our apathy. It should cause us to see others in a totally different light. Thank you, Lord, for the message of Revelation 14. I invite you now to join with me 